It is good, Father, when we gather to worship. It is good when we, we grow in faith and unity. Fathers, we open your word this morning. Morning, I pray that it would it would work by the power of your Holy Spirit in our hearts to have us to be more like-minded with Christ, which would cause us to be more like-minded with one another, and that more and more people would know that we are your son's disciples by the way we love one another. Thank you, Father, for this time and this family that you brought together. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, Grace Fellowship Church. Guests, uh, good to see you all this morning. Um, something that is really clear from my perspective uh, uh, is an issue that, that um, we all need to be careful of as Christians. And I see this in my own life and throughout the life of pastoring this church for a long time. And, and what I want to talk about a little bit in the pre-sermon is two sides of the same coin, and it's, it's covetous and it's pride. Uh, covetous and pride... Uh, in the things of this world. Um, we know that we're not to covet. Right? We, we just saw in, what, 12, 15, I think it is. Jesus just talked about in this, in this uh, parable of the rich fool. He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetous. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So this covetousness, this greedy desire to have more. Uh, and we know in, in the law, it's don't covet your, your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's house or your neighbor's servants or your neighbor's, neighbor's livestock. Don't covet what your neighbor has. You know, obvious things like don't covet other people's cars or houses or the restaurants they can eat at or the vacations they can go on or their income levels. I think most of us get that, but I, I, I hear and I see a covetousness of marriages and spouses. Not, not, in a, not in a sexual sense, but a covetousness of someone else's wife or husband. Because look how they are. We have a covetousness of, of, of children, of family size. And, and, and we, we struggle and we covet what other people have in the sense of material things, in the sense of relationships. And the flip side of that same coin is taking pride in some of those same things. Uh, forgetting as if, you, as if you're the reason you even have those things. As if you're the reason that you have a large family or you have a good income or you have a nice car or a nice house. We sometimes, we sometimes take pride in uh, how many of our children might be saved. We take pride in uh, how, how great our spouse is and how godly our marriage is. It's the flip side of that same coin. And and when we're in heaven, none of those things will matter. Not one of them. Nothing that I just tried to talk about, which was not an all-inclusive list, but none of those things are going to matter when we're in heaven. We won't be comparing the size of our house. We won't be comparing the obedience of our children. We won't be comparing the, the marriages of somebody else. Won't be proud of any of those things. Why do it now? Let's, let's stop doing that. Let, let's, let's consider our own lives and our own hearts and our covetousness and the flip side of the same coin, our pride, about the things of this world. Because those things cause relational conflict amongst us. I watch it happen. I watch as hard as somebody without any children or any family, as hard as they don't want to, they, 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 they covet what you have. 
And I watch people who have really good families and really good marriages in some senses take, take some sort of pride in that. Those things won't matter in heaven. Why focus on them now? Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's true. Be content in your circumstances. Praise God. Worship God. Praise Him for what He's given you and what He hasn't given you. And stop looking across the street or across the aisle at what you don't have. And stop taking any sense of pride in what you do have. All glory be to Christ our King. Amen? Amen. All right, turn your Bibles to Luke 13. We'll begin in verse 22. I probably say this more than I think I say it, but I I cannot recall being this excited to preach a passage of Scripture than this one. In in quite some time. Uh, I really think that as God would help me, what, what we're going to look at will really encourage us and really, really minister to this, this group of saints and their families. Every week, I personally get encouraged and built up as I prepare for sermons. I, I tell you this all the time. I have a great advantage. I, I, I spend lots of time in passages and, and I'm really ministered to. I, I really, I'm, I'm, ex, I'm especially encouraged and and spurred on from this passage. And I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful in how God might see fit to use this, this passage, this time in the sanctification of the people here at Grace Fellowship Church. So today's sermon, which will be at least two, is titled, Enter Through the Narrow Door. Enter Through the Narrow Door. So stand and let me read verses 22 through 30 of Luke 13. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. You may be seated. Remember the reality of what's taking place in Jesus' ministry. He's, he's drawing lots of attention through his miracles, uh, only miracles that God could do. He's, his teaching is very powerful and, and is, is drawing people near him, but he's, he's preaching, preaching a way that is not attracting many true disciples, many true followers. It's a very tiny group of Jews who are following him. He'd been in Galilee for a couple of years, and when he left, he had only a few following him. These Jews, they were looking for this earthly king. And, and he wasn't building an army, and he wasn't getting a big following. Uh, he wasn't doing anything to attack the Roman Empire. Quite frankly, he was attacking, attacking Judaism, it seemed. So this is, this is the, the background into the, the question of today's passage. But before we look at that question and look at Jesus' answer, there is a, a takeaway from the first sentence that I, I really want us to look at, and I was really, I was really encouraged by The text starts here and says, uh, reminds us we find Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. 
you could read that and just kind of, he's just kind of passing through. He's just going from town to town, village to village, teaching on his way toward Jerusalem. And uh, kind of like we sort of just pass through on our way somewhere else. I'm just, you know, passing through the grocery store on my way home to cook supper. I'm just passing through wherever I'm going and whatever I'm doing on my way somewhere else. Remember, it says here, journeying toward Jerusalem. Remember uh, what, what we saw in, in Luke 9 when, when Jesus was leaving Galilee before he went to Samaria and then ultimately going towards Jerusalem. We see this. He went on his, uh, uh, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was headed somewhere, yes? He was headed to the cross of Calvary. That's where he, his face was like flint. Remember, we looked at that. He, from that and that's, we still got 18 months or so at the time, something like that, a year, when he's leaving Galilee before he would go to Calvary. But his face is set on that. He is journeying toward Jerusalem. He is on his way to the cross of Calvary. He was, he was very focused on that mission and that purpose. He came to save, seek and save the lost, and, and what he needed to do was accomplish the forgiveness of sin by giving his life on the cross. And so this is what he was headed toward. He went on his way through towns and villages. So remember, he's in Judea now, and he's on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, Perea. A journey, a going, that is, purpose, pursuit, or undertaking. Jesus was not just passing through or passing by. Jesus, while his destiny was the cross of Calvary, he didn't simply waste his life as he went along. He had a purpose. He had a pursuit. This this concept of as he was going, as he was journeying with this purpose, it brings my mind to Matthew 28, 18. What does it say? Go, therefore. The, 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 the word there is, as you are going. As you are going, baptize, teach. This is what you're to do. Paul's example was Jesus, right? And, and, and he instructs Timothy to do the same thing he'd been doing. 2 Timothy 2, 8-10. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. For which I am suffering, Paul says, bound with chains as a criminal. He's sitting in a Roman prison. He's writing to Timothy, his, his protege. But the word of God is not bound. Paul says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul's entire life post Damascus Road, post-conversion, was about the elect of God being saved into Jesus Christ. That's what his whole life was about. All the way to the end. He knew he was headed toward his death. He's sitting in a Roman prison, and yet he still was living on purpose and telling Timothy to do the same. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he writes this, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He's, remember, he's talking about whether he can eat certain things or should eat in certain things and things sacrificed to idols and that whole conversation about what you eat or drink as a Christian. He says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. So here's how Paul lived. He lived on purpose. He lived with purpose. He lived everything he did, he says, whether he ate or drank, whatever he did was for the sake of the elect. And he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, because everything he did was for the sake of the elect. Yes? Paul says, everything I do, Timothy, everything you do, needs to be for the sake of the elect. He, he, 
He lived his life, Paul lived his life while he was on his journey down to whatever he would or would not eat or drink. He did all of that for the sake of others' salvation. And then he says, imitate me. For us, in 1 Peter 3, 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Why? So they might be saved. Why set the Lord apart in our hearts as Lord? And why be ready at all times to give a reason for the hope that's in it? So that people could be saved. That's why. Are we just journeying towards death? Are we just journeying towards Monday work? Are we just journeying towards the next vacation? Are we just journeying towards making supper tonight? We are to be journeying on purpose. With purpose. Our purpose is to call sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If we're going to imitate Paul in this manner, everything we do would be the glory of God to not cause offense for the sake of the elect. I was reminded and, and so encouraged by this one sentence this week. He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. It took me to this. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, I am. He is a new creation. Amen. The oldest passed away. He's dead. Very few of you ever knew him. Emily had the pleasure of knowing him. Behold, the new has come. Indeed, there is a new man standing before you by the grace of God. I'm a new creation. All this is from God. Amen. Indeed, this is all from God. Who, through Christ, reconciled me to himself and gave me the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He reconciled me to himself through Christ, not counting my sins against me. That's what he did for me. I'm a new creation. I'm in Christ. And he's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So he reconciled me and he gave me this ministry of reconciling others to God through Christ. Therefore, because of that, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As I am going, as I am traveling to the store, to the restaurant, to my daughter's house, over to see Kathy, to Florida, to my own home. I am Christ's ambassador. My life is to be about the salvation of others, of God's elect. I am not simply passing through. We are not Simply passing through. I am passing through on purpose and with purpose. And I hope you're as motivated as I am when you see the example of Christ and the example of Paul and the example of Peter. I hope you're as encouraged as I am and spurred on as I am. And you can insert yourself into the reality that, that is, again, my reality this week, fresh and new. My Lord lived on purpose. His purpose was the, to everything he did. Pastor Nick, read the Gospels through the lens of salvation. Everything he did was for the salvation of the elect. Paul says that's why he does everything. This is too often. I am just passing through. 
I'm just passing through my own home too often. Just way too often. We were talking the other day. Look, I, maybe this is silly talk. It probably is silly talk, but I'll, I'm silly, I guess. You know, I don't know how long I'm going to live. My grandson was just born. I hope to see how tall he gets. Well, probably age 20, 21 before he's fully grown. I don't know if I'll be there for that. But I'm going to see him in a couple of weeks and his mom and his dad. And I need to live on purpose. Because I'm not just passing through. I'm headed somewhere and, and while I'm headed there, I have a job. You have a job. You're not just passing through your home every day, Tamara. You have a job. Moms, dads, be encouraged. I hope you're encouraged. So back to the text. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So he's headed to the cross of Calvary, like he's done in Galilee, like he's done in Samaria, but more in Galilee. And now here he's going from towns and villages and in the streets and in the synagogues. He's preaching the kingdom of God. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? This question that came out, will those who are saved be few? Isn't this a question we hear or think about quite often? And sometimes we hear this question from people that was probably, this was probably a pretty smug question from this guy. Probably kind of, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic, because the belief in Judaism, according to the Mishnah, the Torah, was all Jews have a share in the world to come. That's a quote from the Mishnah. All Jews have a share in the world to come. They only thought the worst of Jews, and that was a very few worst of Jews, did not have an inheritance in God's kingdom. So this guy's... This guy, who's, this guy who's claiming to be sent by God, claiming to be the Messiah, it seems like he's saying different things than that. So someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved, so-so, saved, rescue from danger, saved, deliver into divine salvation. He, like the rich young ruler, was asking about inheriting ter- eternal life. Will those who are saved be few? Stop for a second, and maybe you're already doing this. How would you answer that question? Really think about it. Hey, will those who are saved be few? What comes to your mind? Probably what comes to your mind is one of two basic categories, I would say. One, some might say, of course not. And they would use passages like Revelation 7, 9. After, that look, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And look, behold, a great Multitude that no one can number. That doesn't sound like few, does it? Doesn't to me. They would reference things like this. The promise to Abraham in Genesis twenty-two seventeen: I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. As the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Stars in heaven. We talk about this sometimes. How many billions and billions of stars are there? (laughs) Sand is on the seashore. Come on. I've been to a couple of beaches and the amount of sand is mind-blowing. I've only been to a couple. That does not sound like a few, does it? It doesn't to me. We see in Hebrews 11, 12, Therefore, from one man, Abraham, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. 
So the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, this came to fruition. This is coming. This is how many, look at all of the descendants from Abraham. And so some, when they're asked the question, will those who are saved be few? Will quickly want to answer, no, many. Let me tell you about how many. And then others, even in here right now, might be wanting to retort in your mind. Romans 9, 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Slow down with that stars of heaven and that sand of the sea stuff. Just a few. Clearly, a few. They would maybe point to John 17, 9 and I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus isn't praying for most of the world. He's praying for a few. They might cite Matthew 7, 21 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does, not, does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you, who work, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew's, today's text, or Matthew 7, 13, 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few, many and few. Clearly, it will only be a few. So clearly, if you get answered that question, some people are going to say, very few. Very few. <clears throat> this is something many of us need to hear in this room right now. People are too busy arguing about many and few and want to give some sort of an answer and bring scripture to bear that would prove their answer to be the right answer. Remember who Jesus' audience is, okay? He's addressing this generation of Jews, and very few of them would see the kingdom. So some would say, see, contextualize this, and it's just talking to that generation. Again, I'm not going to take the time to give exhaustive arguments about this topic. I think the scriptures are clear all over the place about the kingdom. But I want you to think how you would answer that question. How would you answer the question? Is it just few that will be saved? I can almost assure you that most of the time you don't answer it like Jesus. Especially in these circles. We're going to argue about how many. That's not what Jesus does. And certainly not how you ought to talk to those outside of this circle. And it's not what he answers. Clearly this is a perfect example for him to say, Will just few be saved? No, it'll be as many as the sands on the sea. As many as the stars in the sky. Or to say, nope, it's just going to be a very few of humanity that will be in glory. He doesn't do that. Stop doing that. Stop thinking like that. Think like Jesus. And what does he turn around and say to this man? <laughs> hey, dude. You ought not worry about that. You ought to worry about yourself. That's his answer. This is very important. This is something that we need to learn. There are, there are things like this that people love to argue about. Love to argue about what the Great Commission means. Love to argue eschatological positions out of these types of passages. 
That's not what Jesus does. Remember, the mindset behind this question, what the Jews thought about few, the Jews thought all Jews, or just about all Jews, had an inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. And the evidence was there weren't many people following this guy saying he was the Messiah. There were many of them who were looking to him as an earthly king. I would argue most, based on Scripture. But only a few Jews? Really? This guy's asking? And Jesus said to them, not stars in the sky, not one-tenth of one percent. He didn't say that. He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. This is his answer. He didn't say yes, only a few. He didn't say as many as the stars in the sky. Rather, he said to them, strive to enter. That's his answer. Don't worry about the size of the kingdom. Don't worry about you should be striving to enter. Strive to enter through the narrow door. The language is clear. He is clearly speaking here. He's clearly answering a question with a different answer than what was asked, but he's answering and he's speaking very clearly. Strive. Agonizomai. Where we get the word agony or agonize. It means make effort. It's even a stronger word than we'll see later is the teo, but it's, it's, it's to make effort. Strive to do with intensity and effort to struggle to fight. Fight to enter. Struggle to enter the kingdom through the narrow door. Struggle, strive to be saved. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter. This word to fight is the word, we, this agonizomai. It's in John 18, 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been agonizomai, fighting. They would be fighting for something. It's used in the scriptures of an athlete that, that exercises. I'm, I'm guessing when you broke 60 minutes or whatever you did, Josh, in the fix, you had some agony. You strived, you worked at it, you trained. That's how the word gets used. Jesus tells them, only a few be saved. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, Paulus, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Many are going to seek to enter and will not be able. How many will be saved? That isn't your concern. Whether there will be only a few or many, all Jews, a few Jews, you should be fighting to enter through the narrow door. Whether a lot of people are going to be saved, whether a few people are going to be saved, or everybody be saved, nobody will be saved, you should be striving to enter through the narrow door. You should stop worrying about how big people the kingdom is and how, who's going to get in how many. And you should stop worrying about how many. You who are in should stop that and continue to strive to enter through the narrow door. Go through the straight gate. Instead of worrying about the made-up guy in Turkey, you'd be worrying about yourself. And we need to be careful when we're asking that question or when we answer that question if we're not in some senses playing God. We've got to repent of that. As far as I'm concerned, who can be saved? Absolutely everyone. I, I believe that to the core of my soul, to the bottom of my toes, the, head of, the top of my head. I believe that anyone, as far as I'm concerned, can be saved. 
Now it'll live like it as I'm traveling, ought I not? Instead of asking how many will be saved, ask if you will be saved. And he says, enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. What is the narrow door? How does one enter into salvation? How is one saved? John 10, 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I came that they might have eternal life and have it completely. Jesus is the narrow door. Jesus is the straight gate. See, the Jews thought they could either enter by their own religious works. They thought they could enter because of their genealogy. They thought they could enter with their sins in tow. But he says, many are going to seek and not be able. You need to strive to enter through, through me. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is to his disciples who are asking where you're going. We don't know where you're going. No one comes to salvation. No one comes to reconciliation to God by their birthright, nor by their religion, nor by their ordinances or sacraments, nor with their sins in tow. Strive to enter via Jesus Christ. How does one be saved? Mark 1, 15 is saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from your sins and believe into Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of those sins. Settle with your accuser before you stand before the judge. Strive to enter by confessing that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Believe that Jesus died to pay for sins and rose from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God. Believe that. Confess Him as Lord. Turn from your sins. Repent of your sins. Believe the gospel that you're being told and you'll be saved. Jesus Christ is Lord. And He is the only way one can be justified before God. The narrow door of salvation is faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your heart, faith in His death, death for the payment of your sin. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Fight, struggle, work. For many will seek to enter and will not be able. The word for seek there is zeteo. And it means to crave. To demand something from someone. To crave. To desire. Many will crave, will desire salvation. Many will demand salvation. Many will tell God to save them. And they will not be able. 
It is far different to strive than to seek. Two completely different words Jesus uses here, obviously on purpose. All y'all, you who just asked me that question, you desire to be in heaven. You're kind of telling God you'll be in heaven because of your religion, because you're a seed of Abraham, because your sins are covered by the blood of bulls and goats. You see, it is far different to be worldly for a moment, but I think we'll understand it. It is far different to seek to be a really good basketball player. A lot of people desire to be good at basketball. My grandson desires to be good at basketball. He pretty much craves it. Kind of tells the coach, let me play more. Let me do more of me, my stuff, because i got to show myself. But he certainly does not strive to be a good basketball player. He's not, he's not working and fighting to be a good basketball player. He's not putting in the effort that it takes. It is, it is one thing to seek business success, and it is another thing to strive for business success. I'm not advocating for those things, by the way. I'm just trying to give you the difference in the two words. Many people seek business success. Very few people strive for it, sacrifice for it, put in the long hours for it. Craving to build a good business is far from fighting and struggling for it. Craving to be a good basketball is far different than fighting and struggling to be a good basketball player. Well, Jesus says, craving to be in the kingdom, craving to be saved, you're not going to be able to find it. Striving for that, fighting for that, struggling for that, entering through the narrow door of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You see, (laughs) there is nothing works-based about this striving. It is simply what Jesus says we are to do. And you enter. How do you enter? You don't enter through your, your good works. You enter through Christ's good works. That, that's what you have to believe. That you have to live like and, and acknowledge ongoingly as you continue to strive to enter through the narrow door. Fighting the, fighting the self-righteousness. Fighting the wanting to tow your sins with it. Fighting the want to say, well, I'm in a Christian family. Or fighting to say, I was baptized. Or I take the Lord's Supper. Or I'm a member in good standing. That's not, that's not how you enter. That's how you crave. That's not how you fight. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood arose, the stream broke against the house that God could not sh- that, and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Many people seek to possess earthly success but do not what it, do, don't do what is needful to achieve it. Plenty of people would like to go to heaven but can't surrender themselves or the things of this world. You see, this, the, narrow, the narrow door is Jesus. And what do you have to confess Him as? Savior or Lord? Lord, He's your Lord. He's your Lord. So, do what He says. And that's not onerous. Because He gives you the Spirit and He, and he has the love for you that manifests itself with a love for Him that obedience is what you naturally want to do. So while you're striving, you are completely empowered to do that striving in and through Christ. The one who you entered through. Do you see? This isn't, this isn't works-based religion. This is, this is the narrow door. It's not something you do one time. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
You don't call Him Lord, Lord, and then not do what He says. Hebrews 4.11 Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. The word there, strive, is sparaso. It means to exert oneself. It's not quite as strong, but here's the same, same idea. Let us therefore strive, exert yourself, to enter that rest. What rest? The rest that we have in and through Jesus Christ. Enter that rest. Rest. The rest of eternal salvation via Jesus Christ so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Enter that rest, the rest of Jesus Christ, enter that narrow door so that you won't fall because of your disobedience. If you try to enter because of your obedience, you aren't going to get in. Matthew 10, 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. We are to endure until the end. And we will endure until the end. And that's not... That's not... Easy. But remember, the yoke that Jesus puts on us is not obedience to the law. The command is to enter through me. So no longer is that a heavy yoke of burden where we're scared if we don't pull hard enough, then our master's going to turn us into horse meat, dog meat, whatever they turn them into. We don't, we don't strive in that sense, but we continue to, to strive to enter through the narrow door because there's lots of people that seek it and don't find it. They aren't able. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The Christian life is one of effort. And that effort is given us by the love of God via Jesus Christ. We love Him because He first loved us. But don't, don't, don't fool yourselves. You don't get to enter the narrow door, but the narrow gate, with all of this sin in tow. You're going to repent of that sin. You don't get to enter through the narrow gate because of your righteous acts. You don't get to enter the narrow gate because your parents are Christians. You don't get to enter in because you're Abraham's seed. Guy who's asking me this question. Philippians 1.27 Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you in absence or, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving for the gospel. Paul says in Philippians 3, 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. He presses on toward the goal. He doesn't just one time believe Jesus is Savior and then live like he's always lived. He presses on toward the goal of the prize, the upward call in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. You see, entering through the narrow door, it is, it is, it is this simple. Christ, His righteousness, His sinless life, His atoning death, His resurrection and ascension, His being seated at the right hand of God. That is how you enter. There's no other way to enter. And entering that way, when you enter through Him, he is your, you confess Him as your Lord. You don't just confess Him as your Savior, you confess Him as your Lord. Entering through the narrow door is costly. It will cost a person, their self-righteousness. It is, it is costly 
Self-righteousness means I'm good enough to get into heaven. I'm counting on my own good works. Millions upon millions of, 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 of people who call themselves Christians every day of their life are relying on their good works to go to heaven. Well, then they haven't entered by the narrow door. They're trying to enter by their works. That has to go away. Self-righteousness? I have the ability to live good enough and do good enough to get to heaven? That goes away. Strive to turn away from your self-righteousness. Keep striving to turn away from your self-righteousness, Christian. Keep fighting that self-righteousness. When you look down your nose at other Christians and say, how dare they? I would never. Yes, you do and you have and you would. But for the grace of God. And if you really think like that, it's really how you live, and that's where you are, then you have not entered. It'll cost a person their sins. You do not enter through that narrow door with your sins in tow. Not even in tow and, 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 okay, I'll just deflate them a little bit, but I'll still bring them with me. <laughs> we'll give them a certificate of divorce so that they can go ahead and be an adulterer, but they'll cover their bases of their heart by giving a certificate of divorce. Well, I'll stop being a drunkard, but I'll continue to be drunk every now and again. It'll cost a person their love of comfort. Entering through the narrow door will take away comfort. Or a love of comfort. It'll, it'll cost a person the favor of the world. You cannot have the favor of the world and have entered through the narrow door. Charles Spurgeon says this, Do not be ashamed of being called puritanical, precise, and particular in regard to the fact that the way of salvation is narrow. See, Don't be ashamed of being called puritanical, precise, and particular in regard to the fact that the way of salvation is narrow. It is a way of self-denial. It is a way of humility. It is a way which is distasteful to the natural pride of men. It is a precise way. It is a holy way. A straight way. And therefore, men do not care for it. They are too big, too proud, to go along a narrow lane to heaven. Yet this is the right way. So, when Jesus is telling this Jew who asked this question, will just few be saved, he's telling them, listen, y'all better just worry about yourselves and you need to enter through this narrow door, which is me, which is a recognition of your sinfulness and your need for a Savior, your lack of ability to honor God and now to honor me as God, as Lord, to, to not count on anything else, and then to live holy lives. But not from the law. Live holy lives in Christ. 2 Peter 1, 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So, Peter says, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing of ours, to other Christians who've obtained this by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. <laughs> may you continue to have the grace of God multiplying in you as you know more of God and of Christ. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Listen, is this what he's telling to people who are not Christians yet? No, he's writing to Christians. You see, I can teach this to my daughter. I can teach this to our children. I can tell them this verse and talk about it. But they can't, outside of Christ, do these things. You can. So, so struggle to enter. You're in, Christian. If you're in, now, now live like it. For this, uh, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brother affection, and brother affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will richly be provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not saying do things, things to get in. He's saying you're in. Now do these things, and when you forget that, Grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ that you would live like a Christian. Not to to get in. But listen, he's writing this to those that are in. He's writing it to you and me. Saying, you have everything you need. Now go live like a Christian. Strive to enter into the kingdom of God. Not because it's going to get you in, because you are in. And this is what he's telling this man with one sentence answer. And we're going to get into more of this, but he's, he's telling him, how does one be saved? Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Well, first of all, He's journeying around, right? He's on purpose living. He's teaching and, and he's going from village to village on purpose. And then he gets stopped and gets asked this question. The question, Lord, are, will those who are saved be few? What doesn't he say? Stars in the heavens. One-tenth of one percent. Doesn't even talk about that. What he says is, strive, struggle, fight to enter through the narrow door. Jesus, he is the door. He is the way. He is the only way to the Father. Enter that way. Your religion won't help you. Your your genealogy won't help you. Your good works won't help you. Your sins won't help you. Making your sins better and shining them up a little bit won't help you. None of that's going to help you. Enter. Through Christ. Don't gussy yourself up so you can come in, come in, and gussy yourself up. For many, I tell you, will seek, they'll crave, they'll demand something from someone, and will not be able. Jesus is our Lord, not only our Savior. He is our Savior. We will live by His power differently. We will strive to enter. And because we've entered, we will live differently. And when we don't, we will look to Christ. The same way we enter, the same way we stay. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door 
And you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. The door will shut soon. The door will shut soon. And when the door shuts, it's going to be too late. I don't know about y'all. The first thing that comes to my mind when I think about the door shutting is Genesis 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were opened. Water was coming up out of the earth. Water was coming down from the skies. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. How did they enter? Through the one door. There's only one door, and that's how they entered. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. When the Lord shut the door... What's going on out here? Devastation. Death. Agony. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. What happened when that door was shut? Everyone on the outside died in probably one of the most horrific ways you can die. Drowning. I can only imagine if they're close enough beating on the door saying, let me in. I believe you now, Noah. out here that's what's going on the door is shut everything on the dry land in whose nostrils nostrils was the breath of life died he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens they were blotted out from the earth only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark Back to what we're looking at today. Jesus says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer, I do not know where you come from. He went on his way through towns and villages. As we are going on our way to wherever we go, let's be like Christ and let's be like Paul and let's be like the apostles and let's be like we're told to be and be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in us. Our lives, we've been saved and why aren't we taken to glory? Right away. What are you here for? I would argue you're here to seek and save the lost. I would argue you're to go, and as you are going, do what? Make disciples and baptize them and teach them what God taught them, and they're to do what? As they're going, to make disciples and baptize them and teach them. And I don't know how many. Here's what I know. There are going to be a multitude in heaven that I can't count. And I know that there are many who want to get in and won't get in. And, and be careful not to just make that be about the Jews. Be careful not to allow for that mustard seed to grow in your mind. 
And be careful to not make them just about the Jews because what's the difference between the Jews and Rome? There is no difference. Roman Catholicism is Judaism in almost every way. So don't make this so limited in your minds and don't make it so massive in your minds. Just answer like Jesus answered. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. One of the reasons I was so spurred on and encouraged is this is, I think it's okay to have discussions about the breadth or the width of Christianity. It's okay to have discussions. But I know for me, far too often my answer has been few. Let me tell you why. At the same time, understanding and believing, it's going to be more than I can count. I mean, I'm going to see brothers and sisters that I can't even, I mean, more than myriad. But that's not the point. It's not the point for me. It's not the point for you. It's not the point for anyone who's yet to be saved. If our lives are about salvation of others, which they ought be, and our own selves, but if we're in the kingdom we're in, now live like it. If that's, if that's what our lives are about, then, again, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you right now, as far as you're concerned, everyone can be saved. But as far as you're concerned, not everyone will be saved. Because you're not a universalist. And never will it be universalism on this planet. Ever. Until Christ comes back to a new heaven and a new earth, then it will be universalism. Closing thought. When asked, will those who are saved be few? We should have our answer be like Jesus's. Not to predict a number so small to leave our listeners without hope. Listen to what I just said. When asked how many, don't make the number so small that you make your listener without hope. Help your listener see, well, if there's only going to be three, why not me be one of them? Nor to make the number so large as to make the way seem easy and the road wide. Rather, to answer like Jesus and to have the questioner or questioners consider if they are striving to enter through the narrow door of faith in Christ alone. We don't have to answer the question, how many? We don't have to argue about how many. We have to tell people of Christ and remind ourselves of Christ. And we can hope and we can believe that God can save anyone. And we can know that God will not save everyone. Or Christ came for nothing, if that's the case. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement it gives us, the reproof it gives us, the correction it gives us, the hope that it gives us. Father, help us to be more like Christ. Help us to, to not be so theologically high-minded that we forget our purpose is to proclaim Christ that others would be saved. Help us to be like Paul that we do all things for the sake of the elect. Pray all things in Christ's name. Amen.